Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. And we have an excellent example of this today, where actually the literature seems to have been imitated by uh, the news. Um, I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Brotherless Night. So, do you know anybody who's been canceled? Like personally, it's like a person in your in your actual circle of friends. I don't think so. Uh, do you know anybody who's been canceled? I really don't think so. I mean, like I know people who like were sort of cast out from polite society before the internet happened. You know, like uh, what did we call it back then? Like young life. You know, um, what did we call that then? Uh, Shun- that was just shunning. That was just straight sort of, shunning. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. So, well, in these modern times, uh, The New Yorker, that fine publication, has seen fit to print an article called The Party is Cancelled, um, or A Club for the Cancelled, somewhere, some online um, venues. And then this is in the May 17th issue, um, but it was released online and kind of was going viral. And the piece is about people who have been cancelled, and they gather. They gather, and a woman who hosts regular gatherings for them um, lives in New York, and the group is called the Gathering of Thought Criminals. And honestly, it's kind of repellent. Yeah, I saw. I, well, I saw that because you told me about it. Um, but uh, in the exact co- kind of coincidence, or it's not fate, predestination. Actually. What is it? Prefiguring. You know, like the the, the great way that fiction has of imagining. We, mani- we actually or, manifested this somehow. Yeah. Um, is there's a there's a version of this story out right now, and it's a novel. Um, and it's much more interesting, actually. Uh, Jane Roper's new novel, The Society of Shame, and she's going to talk to us today about the New Yorker piece, um, her book, Cancellation, and what it's like to see a funhouse mirror version of your actual fictional invention reflected back to you in the real world. Jane Roper is the author of two previous books, a memoir, Double Time, and a novel, Eden Lake, Her short fiction, essays, and humor have appeared in publications including McSweeney's Internet Tendency, The Millions, The Rumpus, Salon, and Poets and Writers, and on NPR. She's a graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop and lives in the Boston area with her husband and two children. Jane, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. I absolutely loved your novel, The Society of Shame, and I'm so excited to talk about it. Your protagonist, Kathleen Held, arrives home after a trip to find her garage on fire and her husband, Senate hopeful Bill Held cheating on her with a young member of his campaign staff. And then the person who drove her home from the airport snaps a picture of the whole scene 
and all of this would be like, frankly, shit fast enough, but <laughs> this photographer also captures her sizable menstrual leak. Uh, and when the photo hits the news, suddenly Kathleen becomes the unwilling face of a movement called Yes, We Bleed. Um, the ensuing media scrum is like pretty awful. And then a well-dressed stranger shows up at her door and Kathleen steals the invitation he's offering her husband to a discreet group for canceled people called, of course, the Society of Shame, run by a former romance novelist, Donica Bellevue. And there's so much plot crammed in here. I feel like a lot of books would have stopped like before the before the period. And, <laughs> and now we're not only... You're not supposed to describe the entire novel in the intro. <laughs> No, there's more. There's much well, more. Well, I haven't. I haven't. There's, there's much more. more. I know. Um, okay. Anyway, your book has a lot of resemblances and some notable divergences from the recent New Yorker article, The Party is Cancelled by Emma Green, which was kind of going viral. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd love to start with just the most obvious, which is that Kathleen could have navigated her troubles alone. They were considerable. How did you come to invent the group, the Society of Shame? Well, so... When I first started writing The Society of Shame, I was I very much had the hero's journey in mind. So I was thinking about how Kathleen is, you know, in the hero's journey, you have the call to adventure, right? So Kathleen is sort of called to this adventure of being the face of this movement, this Yes, We Bleed menstrual rights movement that she becomes the figurehead of. Uh, she refuses the call, right, like the hero does. But then there's the entrance of the mentor. And I knew I had to give Kathleen some sort of mentor to help her through this crazy upheaval in her life. And that's where the idea of Danica Bellevue, who's this canceled, um, best-selling romance author, comes in, Danica and her society of shame, to help Kathleen navigate her new circumstances. Um, the, you know, one of the reasons I wrote the book is I wanted to explore the ways that uh, you know, online shame and fame work. And as I was thinking about that, what I was pondering was just how um, isolating these things can be when when people when you're called out on something when you're shamed when you're faint when you're famous it can be very it's overwhelming right the whole world is looking at you and judging you um maybe reducing you to a single act or a single single image um so i was trying to imagine why some you know you, you can imagine how someone like kathleen who's whirling around in this chaos might be attracted to the community that a group like that could offer um you know banding together with other people who've been in this experience uh so that's that's where the idea came from um it made her sense for her to be offered something that would um i don't know give her something to both find the meaning and belonging in, but also end up having to push back against a little bit. And the society worked well that way. Yeah, I found like I had my own views about like who in this group I felt sorry for and who I did not. Uh, there was kind of like a Venn yeah. diagram of that, you know. Uh, but before we talk, I mean, and it matters, really it matters case to case, I think, at least it did for me anyway. Uh, could you talk about the fictional members of that group and the different scenarios that did get them in trouble? And we can see what we think about them. Yes. 
<laughs> yes, absolutely. And you're you're so right. And I'm glad you said that about case to case, because it, it certainly does. And I think that's something that gets lost in the whole conversation about so-called cancel culture is how unique each case is. Um, but yeah, in creating the society, I tried to provide sort of a spectrum of people who are more or less loathsome, some folks who've done something really egregious and some who maybe are more forgivable. So you have maybe on the egregious, definitely on the egregious side, you have Mona, who is this um, sort of middle-aged white woman who calls the police on a black utility worker who's in her yard thinking that he's you know, a prowler or a criminal. Um, you have Brent, who's this frat guy who shows up in the background of a photo of an elderly couple's anniversary party, and he's mooning. It looks like he's mooning them or mooning the camera, but he's actually not, but nevertheless. Uh, there's Michael, who is a former Catholic school teacher who gets uh, caught using his work computer for sex camming and looking at porn. Um, then there's Annabelle, who is a mom who someone captures on camera um, like scolding her child in the uh, aisles of a Whole Foods and then a bunch of cereal falls on her coincidentally and it gets made into a gif so she's she's a gif <laughs> um, uh, yeah that, that's, so like that's Annabelle I would oh, yeah. say and would, would oh, you maybe what were you gonna say Oh, oh, I was just going to say, Jane, would you, would you, would you add Danica to that? Oh, actually? yeah. And Danica, right. Danica, as, as the, the matriarch of the group, what she did was she made some really disparaging comments about her readers and put them down as being like, you know, I don't want my work to only be read by overweight housewives in the Midwest and said some other things that turned the public against her. So I was just going to say to go through my list of what I am, you can, I'm assuming you maybe has different feelings, but like, so Mona she's the one who called the cop on that guy right like okay so that's very similar to an incident that happened in central park that i remember happening where there was a woman who called mm-hmm. the, the cops on a black uh pedestrian who didn't have his dog bird on a leash right yeah bird. um no sympathy right. for me uh but the mm-hmm. uh, and and um michael the the old porn at work guy no sympathy come on use your brain <laughs> Um, right. But right. I felt, you know, like Brent, okay, he's mooning his friends, he said. He didn't know the old cop. I felt like, I felt like, ah, maybe, maybe as a former frat guy, yeah. I felt too, too nice to it. But he wasn't, yeah. you know, he's not sexually <laughs> harassing someone. He's like messing with his buddy. Uh, so I right. felt like, you right. know, big deal. And the yeah, woman in the, the who's scolding her child who has the cereal phone, that's just a bad luck thing, like for her to, you know, anyway. Mm hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, there's a lot of, and, and there's some ambiguity in there too, right? Because we only know little pieces of each of their stories, and we don't know how they reacted in the moment. We don't know, I mean, and what the book does explore is how do they react after the fact, right? Are they trying to, for example, you've got the the porn watcher guy is very sorry for what he did and is really, you know, trying to make, improve himself, whereas Mona who made the phone call on the black utility worker is in pure denial, right? right. Saying like, oh no, I'm not a racist because because I read this book by a black author. I'm not, you know, I have a, I have a black friend. So yeah, <laughs> she's using all the terrible excuses that, and you know, they, uh, Danica does call her out on that, but she doesn't seem to hear. Right, right. I wonder if you can, um, like, so for me, I think I was surprised that, I mean, I think I was so strongly aligned with Kathleen that like, there's a moment where Kathleen feels like a twinge of sympathy for Michael, the mm-hmm. Catholic school teacher. And, and I also was like, but he's sorry. Yeah. And then I was like, Sugi, what? What? <laughs> you know, but, but sort of like one of the great pleasures of your book is like it's invitations to judginess, mm-hmm. honestly, like because um, like so much of the humor is in this sort of these assessments of others, yeah. um, Kathleen's assessments of others, 
um, her difficulty with their assessments of her. And all of these scenarios, I'm just like, the scenarios that you've invented are so specific. Could you talk a little bit about workshopping these scenarios and like picking them? Like, are there details in what you just described that that you changed, that you wiggled around? And and how did some of those evolve? Yeah, I mean, it really was... um a big part of the book's evolution to figure out who these people were and what they did and um, also figure out, to your point, like, I, I wanted readers to ask, well, what is forgivable? You know, what's not forgivable? When when can people be redeemed? Should they be given a chance to be redeemed? Or are there some things we just say, nope, sorry, you blew it. Um, so let me think, I, you know, I think one of the things that I did with... Um, with Michael, since you mentioned him, the school teacher, I, I originally had him um, soliciting prostitution, like seeing prostitutes. Oh, you know what it was? This is what it was. He originally had gone and to like a, um, a a place that was a front for prostitution. It was like a nail salon, um, but somehow that just made him way creepier and grosser. <laughs> like it, it took it to a level that I like. I was like, I, I need readers to be able to have some empathy for him or at least like give him the benefit of the doubt that maybe he's going to make good and maybe he's going to improve and, and, you know, so that they'll feel that same kind of sympathy that Kathleen feels for him. But yeah, having him go like get a hand job at a, a nail salon was just well, too On the other hand, Robert <laughs> Kraft, the owner of the New England Patriots seems to have survived that just fine. He, that is true. That is true. But, you know, do we do we want to cuddle up with him? He's no, not canceled so much, for me, know. but that's because of who he owns in the team. I don't, you know, but I, yeah, I'll cancel him for that other thing. too. Right. <laughs> hey, Bostonian right here. Actually, no, I have no loyalty to the to the Patriots. So, oh, now you're going to get canceled. Um, this, this is going to be the podcast yeah, that ends yeah. your career in Boston. <laughs> it's going to end my career. No, I could I could not care less about the Patriots. So please feel free to disparage crafts as much as you want. So there's a great scene in the book when Kathleen meets um, the other members of the Society of Shame and thinks about like why she is there, why would she belong to the group, and I wonder if you can read just a bit of that for us. Yeah, sure. Let's see. Ba-ba-da-ba-da. Okay. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. So, um... Kathleen is talking about how she feels so humiliated and embarrassed by the fact that everyone has seen her husband cheating on her and has seen this um, stain on the back of her pants. And and Mona, uh, our friendly neighborhood racist, says, "Uh, there's no reason for you to feel embarrassed or ashamed, Kathleen. That's the entire fucking point. Excuse my language, Michael. Michael, Catholic schoolboy, raised his hands in a gesture of bewilderment. But she's ashamed and embarrassed nevertheless, said Danica, and her life has been wrecking balled, just like everyone else's, which is why she came to us for help. I don't know about help, said Kathleen. I guess I just want to know when it stops. When what stops, said Danica. I don't know, said Kathleen. The feeling like... Like your life doesn't fully belong to you anymore, said Michael. Yes, that was exactly what it was like, Kathleen realized. Like her life had been invaded by the public. They'd stormed her shores and planted a yes-we-bleed flag on her chest, never stopping to consider how she might feel about it. Yes, yeah, she said. I mean, how long is it going to go on? Mona let out a ha 
Annabelle made a whimpering noise. The actor gave a low whistle. I forgot to introduce the actor. He's a guy who was caught uh, sort of on a hot mic making some lewd comments about a makeup artist, famous actor. Uh, the actor gave a low whistle. I've felt that way for the past 20 years, long before what happened. As for me, said Michael thoughtfully, it's not so much the idea of having thousands of strangers talk about me that's the hardest. It's having everyone in my family know, and all my friends and colleagues, my students, especially my students. To her own surprise, because God knows she wasn't exactly in the mood for feeling charitable towards someone who had been sex camming with random women behind his wife's back, Kathleen felt a swell of something close to tenderness for Michael. There was such resignation in his voice, such regret, far more of it than she'd sensed from Bill thus far. But she chased the feeling away. He didn't deserve anyone's sympathy, least of all hers. Well, I did get national exposure, Mona broke in. It's been, let's see, three months since I got lynched by the mob, and I still feel it. Lynch mob may not be the best choice of words, said Michael. The worst possible, said Danica. Oh, for God's sake, haven't any of you ever seen a Western? That's the kind of lynch mob I'm talking about. There was silence all around. It occurred to Kathleen that perhaps Mona was the reason everyone in this assemblage happened to be white. What person of color would be able to stand being in a support group, or whatever this was, with her? Kathleen felt a bit queasy about it herself. Mona sat back and folded her arms. You know what? Just forget it. Danny, do you think I could get another wine? Danica called for Jonathan, and he reappeared a moment later, a white cloth slung over his arm, with a tray bearing a glass of wine. I think I'll actually have a glass, too, Kathleen said to him. He gave her an approving nod. For the next 20 minutes or so, the group recounted to Kathleen the stories of their first few days and weeks after they became the object of public shaming and humiliation. The sleepless nights and appetiteless days, the crying jags and feelings of panic, anger, and dejection. Annabelle, though she'd, be, she'd been gift three months prior, was still in what Danica called the acute stage, still reeling, the ground having not fully yet rematerialized beneath her feet. Michael, Mona, Brent, and the actor were further along and assured Kathleen that it did get better, just not terribly quickly. They'd each had their coping mechanisms. For the actor, it was Peloton and trips to an island in the Pacific that he refused to name. For Mona, it was hypnotherapy, acupuncture, and massage. For Michael, prayer and long, solitary walks on the beach between meetings with, a divorce, with divorce, divorce lawyers. Brent said he drank a lot of beer and watched a shit ton of ESPN. None of it made Kathleen feel terribly hopeful about what lay ahead for her, and yet there was an undeniable comfort in knowing that she wasn't alone. It was crazy. She knew it was crazy, but maybe she did want to be a member of the society. Not that these were people she would ever normally associate with. There was no excuse for what any of them had done, except in the case of poor Annabelle, perhaps. Their reputations did deserve to be tarnished. They did deserve to be called out for their actions. She wasn't like them, thank God. But there was one key thing they shared. Like them, Kathleen had been exposed thanks to the unchecked power of the internet and people's appetite for scandal. Not exposed as racist or sexist or a cheater or mooner, but as a sad, clueless casualty of her charismatic husband's infidelity. A casualty with a gross, hemorrhaging body to boot. And now, here they all were together, trying to help one another come to grips with their shame and move forward. In the midst of the maelstrom that was her life right now, being here with this group of infamous outcasts, feeling the sudden unexpected sense of belonging felt like a lifeline. Thank you. Which is a phrase that actually, someone, someone in the, the article actually used that phrase, that it felt like a lifeline. When I saw that, I was like, oh my God. In the New Yorker piece. But we're going to talk about that wow. in just a second because there are some incredible yeah. parallels. <laughs> um, 
I mean, one yeah. of the things, though, that I found interesting here is that, you know, of course, cancel culture and the term itself, which I don't like, uh, but the way that it the way that people do outrage on uh, the social media is always without nuance. Right. It is always like 100 percent one thing or 100 percent the other thing. And the interesting thing about novels, of course, is that they can't be written that way. And in fact, they're better when they have complications. And in that passage that you just read, right, that twinge you mentioned this already this sympathy that she feels for this guy michael that that she pushes away because you know she's mad at her husband too and that that sort of those complicated emotions i think are very well described in the book and i wondered you know is it was it what you could have populated this group with people like her who were blameless blameless but got um outed in some way right how come you chose to also have people who clearly were blamed to be blamed for their problems and put her in the group with them (laughs) Well, I mean, I think partly for that very reason you say is that so much conversation online when it comes to, you know, shaming or blaming or calling people out is without nuance. There's just, it's either pro or con, like you said, and there's, there isn't a lot of room for more considered discussion. So I did want to have that range. But from a thematic standpoint, and and I guess that's part of why, um, thematically speaking, I wanted Kathleen to sort of stand in for the reader in a way, right? So if she had been, um, if she had done something horrible herself at the outset, she wouldn't have been able to uh, quite be as objective in in evaluating these folks and and seeing these folks and taking in what they had done um, or what they hadn't done. So because I wanted to put that mirror up, she served sort of as a as a mirror in that way. Uh, what they could re- what she could relate to was this idea of being in the public eye and the way that that disrupts life. But she she was able to stand back and have a little perspective on them. Um, it also allowed from a from a narrative standpoint. She had to. She she became Danica's sort of special case, right? Her um, her pet project. Danica decides, okay, well, you you're different. You're a different case from the rest of these folks in the group. So you can kind of be an example to us, a, a, an inspiration. <laughs> we can through you know through you show how you can turn this into a great thing. You can reinvent yourself. You can um, do this amazing image makeover and maybe everyone else will find it kind of uplifting. So that allowed her to take center stage in a lot of the um, the scenes and the, the interactions within the group. Um, but it also, you know, when Kathleen begins, she is blameless, right? And as she comes farther into the public eye, and, and as such, she, I think she puts herself a little bit above the other members of the society. Uh, but as she gets more and more famous, when you're famous, you've got a target on your back, right? So people start trying to peck at her and, and find her faults and find her hypocrisies and find things that she said or did that, that they can gang up on. Um, so she ends up uh, going from feeling shame to being shamed. And that puts her in an interesting position when it comes to her relationships with the people in the group. And I just want to make clear for listeners, you know, like this is, this is a real rounded discussion of what the all the different forms of this sort of public humiliation rituals that we have. It's not, this is not the book, the novel that Elon Musk would write if he was going to write a novel that's like saying <laughs> the cancel culture is all bad, you know, um, or that it's oh, all God, good, no, right? No. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really interesting, right. critical look at that. Um, you know, and, and now Sugi's going to bring up this article, which might be something different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so at the top of the show and, and throughout this conversation, we've been referencing this, this New Yorker piece. Um, and... 
Uh, it features a group somewhat like the one that you invented with its own cast of characters. And it was convened by a woman named Pamela Paresky, who's a psychologist and sometime actress who lives in Chelsea. And uh, for our listeners who might not have read this article, um, I wonder if you would read just a snippet of that for us, and then I'd, we'd love to chat about it. Okay, we're going to take a short break here, and we'll be right back. So this... Um... This group is called, or they, some people call it the, <laughs> the thought criminals. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a bit where we're sort of getting to know some of the characters, just like getting to know the characters in the Society of Shame. Uh, the reporter says, I asked the attendees why they felt drawn to the thought criminals. I kind of resent that we have to sit here and explain what the current landscape is, a writer named Ben Apple replied. In 2021, he dropped out of his MFA program after publishing a Substack essay accusing other students, who mostly identified queer, of looking down on him because he is cisgender, even though he is also gay. Every motherfucker knows what this landscape is like, Apple said. They all had different stories for how they had ended up on the guest list. Ricky Schlott, a 22-year-old journalist who dropped out of New York University during the pandemic, had become friends with Pareski on the chat app Clubhouse. Schlott had been looking for a forum to have conversations beyond her campus, where she felt like she had to hide books by Thomas Sowell, a prominent conservative economics, uh, economist under her mattress. Occasionally, Pareski recruits a new thought criminal by DMing them on Twitter while they're facing backlash. That's how she met Tyler Fisher, an actor and comedian who has found modest social media fame by posting parody videos, including a crude series mocking Dylan Mulvaney, the social media star who makes TikToks about her gender transition. what's so weird is that that article has like it has the intro section of the people just like in your book right i mean that's and i know clear your book came out before this article it's not like oh yeah oh yeah they're cribbing from you and or real life is in some way although that happens when you do a good job (laughs) imagining something what was that like to read this piece uh it was it was very very weird i mean like no fewer than 15 people emailed me or messaged me to tell me about it. Like within the first 24 hours it came out. And when I read it, um, first of all, I mean, the one thing that really blew my mind was the parallels in terms of like, there's this matriarch figure in Pareski, like kind of like a Danica in my group. Um, and then there's this, these sort of fancy dinners and cocktails. Uh, so those parallels were, were fascinating. Um, but I also was like, oh, God, that, reading about this in reality is really much grosser than the... I, it makes, like, the society of shame in my book feel almost, like, lovable by comparison. Um, just cause, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's it's one thing to do have something happen in fiction and satire, and then one thing to think about the reality of it. But I think there, there are some other qualitative differences in the tone and the, the purpose of the group as well in, in some major ways. Well, let's talk about that. So, so as you mentioned, Pamela resembles Danica, mm-hmm. um, but there are these huge differences in the group's goals and principles, a lot of which have to do with like, accountability yeah. and guilt. And Pamela Presky thinks that cancel culture is a real threat. Um, also, per the article, it can't exactly She's doing the Elon Musk <laughs> version of this group, I believe. Totally. Yeah, totally. I mean... And then Danica, in that like first meeting that we see, has group attendees referring to mantras like remorse, redeem, repair. Like there's an interest in, yeah. maybe not for maybe maybe not yet for Mona, for example, but like right. 
some some people are looking to repent and be forgiven, as you as you mentioned before. Can you talk a little bit about that gap between the real life version and your version? Yeah, I I mean, what it seems the, the the case with like the the club for the can you know the the thought criminals. It's really like a big grievance party, right? It's a lot of people s- seeming to revel in their outside, you know, and like ah, oh, we've got canceled by the woke mob, and and we're going to sit around drinking and complaining about it. Um, whereas the society of shame is it is like you said it's very much more Denica wants people to figure out how to move forward sort of first to like reclaim their their sense of self and their sense of individuality right to sort of separate because you know when someone is shamed online and I know this from talking to people to whom it has happened you start to feel like weirdly dehumanized because people aren't talking about you right they're talking about they're not talking about you as a human being they're talking about what they know of you from you know one one thing or a series of things but they're discounting a huge part of you as a person. So you feel like, oh my God, who am I? So Danica is trying to help people regain a sense of control, both in two different ways and figure out how to move forward, both through, like you said, repenting, redeeming themselves, maybe doing a lot of soul searching, figuring out, do I need to reform my behavior? Do I need to make amends and repair the damage I've done? So some of those are the more thoughtful ones, but Danica's also all about like image and marketing. So she also gives people ways to, you know, reinvent themselves or reframe the conversation or, you know, reap in Kathleen's um, case to take advantage of, of the opportunities in front of them. But there is no revel, right? There's no standing around and reveling in the fact that, you know, you, you've been canceled and screw the rest of the world and cancel culture is ruining society. None, none of that crap because... I mean, I wouldn't want to write that. Book. I mean, yeah, that's the thing is like <laughs> so, the thing so that I don't is... like about the about real life cancel culture people is that generally they haven't been canceled. And basically they're just saying like, we don't I don't like it when people disagree with me. So I'm going to say that I've been canceled. Yeah. or I don't like being held accountable for some legitimately bad thing I did. I mean, one of the guys mm-hmm. at this party is Joshua Katz, a Princeton professor who like goes around saying that people don't like his ideas, but what he got fired for Princeton was uh, investi- was was not being particularly helpful in, in an investigation into a consensual sexual relationship he was having with a student, which is bad. Mm-hmm. You know, there's <laughs> yeah, no, like, I mean, you that, should be canceled uh, for that. Bye-bye. You got fired. You're not canceled. That's a, lot a of- job. You lost it. It's, it's not your right to have that job. Yeah. And there, there is a lot of it, it, it's it, it's true. I mean, some people, their version of being canceled is, yes, being criticized or called out um, for some people. Yeah. Like they have more serious consequences. They might lose their job. They might lose their platform. Uh, so there's there's a range. But um, yeah, I, I mean, or Stephen Elliott, <laughs> who we did a, our, one of our very first episodes involved yeah. Claire V. Watkins mm. reading about her encounter with him. It was right at the beginning of the Me Too right. movement. Right. Yeah. I mean, that that's like a cut and dry case. It's true. It's true. Um, there are, uh, it does seem like part of the problem when we talk about so-called cancel culture, and I hate that term too, is because it lumps things of varying degrees all together. Um, so the fact that, you know, even some of the, like having to hide, you know, feeling like you don't, you can't read books about conservative economists in your dorm room is not being canceled, right? That's feeling like, oh, maybe I'm, that's, that's feeling out of step with your peers. Losing your job, um, sure, you could call that being canceled or you can call it being fired. Uh, but it sounds like even within this thought criminals group, there's, there's a vast range of, it's, it seems like a group of strange, strange bedfellows, to be sure. There is a person quoted in this article who I feel like 
is somehow guesting from your novel. Um, <laughs> and it is Sarah Rose Siskind who um, met Pereski at a party curled up under a chinchilla blanket, which is like a, a very New Yorker detail that I like. And she is the one in the article who sort of says, um, you know, there are so many people who trade in cancellation circles where they wear it like a badge of honor. It is good to be brave, but you shouldn't be an edgelord. <laughs> I was like, yes. she was the one who felt like she was a little bit out of your book. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Wondering, wondering, wait, do I, maybe I don't quite belong here or maybe I'm, I'm walking, you know, I'm straddling a line here between feeling like I want to own it and, and say, no, I'm right. I've been unfairly persecuted versus, okay, well, maybe I also want to reflect a little bit. So yeah, she did. She did. And the chinchilla blanket detail was, was, I agree. Chef's I case. mean, and race does play a really large part in a lot of these issues along with the Me Too movement. I'm looking at an article here that I just came up on my phone about the diversity, equity, and inclusion officer at Uber whose name is Bo Young Lee, who just got fired for running a series of workshops uh, or has been asked to step down or something, step back maybe, um, that were uh, about diving into the spectrum of the American white woman's experience. Um, and I think, oh, and they were titled Don't Call Me Karen. So they, I don't know. And then the black and, and Latino employees did not like this. And, um, and so, hmm. but it's complicated, right? That's very, I mean, it'll be interesting to see the story just broke, but, but one thing that is notable and that you noted in the, in the, you noted in the book and that um, is notable about the New York order is that these people here, the membership, of these groups are mostly white, right? And yeah. privileged to a certain extent. Can you talk about how you dealt with that in the book? Um, and how you thought about it? Yeah, sure. I mean, generally, when people are, you know, called out on things, it's for punching down, right? It's for uh, picking on people who are who are in, you know, less privileged positions. Uh, and, you know, uh, in many cases, that's going to be someone who's white picking on and, and who is relatively privileged um, punching down. I mean, the irony is a lot of times then they go around and say, oh, I'm being I'm the one being oppressed because I'm not allowed to say anything or I'm the one being oppressed because I don't have the superiority and privilege that I used to have. So that that it, part it, is important <laughs> there. Oh, yeah. 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 People don't recognize that I'm as cool as I am and I feel really bad about it. <laughs> right. Or you have like, you know, the, the, the guy, the actor who's like, I can't get an agent because I'm a white man. It's like, mm, really? Um, so, it, you know, it, it tracks that a lot of the folks in, in the, uh, the thought criminals group and, you know, as it followed in, in the society of shame would be white. Um, it, you know, and I think that for me, from a craft standpoint or from the, making the decisions about the book, I felt like, if I had had some of my characters, the characters in the Society of Shame be folks of color, it would have brought in a whole other, even more complex set of dynamics that I felt like it was going to become a very different You didn't book. want to put uh, John so Morant I, in there and have him, uh, well, I guess he hadn't been waving his guns around <laughs> at the time. Go ahead. Sorry. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it just, it just felt like I wanted to keep it 
focused and concentrated on a cer- certain kind of, of you know, cancellation or, or being called out. So in a certain space, in a certain demographic. Um, although I did, you know, there is a character who, this isn't so much about race, but about class or culture, right? So one of the characters in the Society of Shame is a woman who's a cattle rancher. And she gets, catches hell from liberals because she posts a photo on Facebook of herself and her 12-year-old son with guns, and they've just shot some wolves on their property. Uh, so animal rights lovers and like, you know, gun control proponents are really angry about this horrible photo. But the fact that she's a cattle rancher and wolves are attacking her cattle and it's, you know, where she lives, it's legal for, I mean, this is based on true thing in, in Idaho, or I think that's where I have her from. So this is like reality. So here's a case where I think in that case, who's, who's doing the punching down? Who's doing the punching up? So it brings in ex- interesting questions of, of culture and class and norms, right? Because shame is about norms. Shame is about, we shame people when they feel they have violated a norm. And when norms are quickly changing or when norms like vary tremendously between different groups who are sharing the same culture, the same society, it gets to be a very messy business indeed. So um, we've been talking about this New Yorker article and I first became aware of it when I was, you know, I was on Twitter and people were complaining about the article. Mm -hmm. Um, And I saw a lot of, this isn't a direct quote, but sort of an aggregate composite imaginary tweet of, more or less, how canceled are they if they're in the New Yorker comments? Um, that's how I would characterize them. Yeah. And just a huge amount of your novel is about what's in the news and how it affects Kathleen and, and also the other, the other members. Um, and also Kathleen's daughter, mm-hmm. Aggie, um, and other characters are constantly, they're constantly imbibing the news, reacting to it, um, watching it in different forms. There are interludes between the days that Kathleen is experiencing that include things like transcripts of press conferences or television shows and other just glimpses into what people are saying. Yeah. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about how you decided to kind of portray the media in here and also just how the media covers people who are canceled and how it covers, as the New Yorker article does, how it covers the idea yeah. of cancel culture. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I don't buy that that criticism that they're not canceled if because they're in the New Yorker. It's not like the New Yorker's publishing essays they write and or in like inviting them to be at the New Yorker festival. It's like reporting on the fact that they're canceled. So that that to me seems like a, a silly argument. However, um, yeah, I mean, I I do think that the way that the media reports on cancel culture is hugely problematic, starting with the fact that we call it cancel culture, which, you know, we've touched on. It's like, what even does that mean? You know, what does it mean to be canceled? What is, what's the difference between being canceled and being held accountable or being called out or credit or simply being criticized? Uh, so, I mean, the the media is just so ripe for parody. And I did a lot of that in the book. As you say, there are these interstitials that take the form of TV show transcripts or, um, you know, Twitter threads, think pieces uh and they all sort of they show the kind of frenzy of activity happening around Kathleen and they speak to the the way that everyone's trying to have a hot take on everything that's an, I mean I think that's another issue with it again when we've talked about lack of nuance um these discussions around cancel culture so often are done in these like slapdash ways. I'm kind of surprised that the internet hasn't already been overtaken. Maybe it has been, and I don't, I'm not aware of it with like 10,000 essays in response to the New Yorker essay. I mean, the New Yorker article, maybe they're out there, Um, (laughs) but it's, we're doing one right now. 
Okay, great. Yeah, actually, we are. Oh, my God. We're part of it. We're part of the problem. Ah! Uh. This is a slightly warm take. Yeah, this is, this is a warm take. Right, right. Well, when you involve fiction, it's, it's necessarily going to be a warmer, a warmer, slower take. Um, I was also... But okay, yeah, finish I mean, your I, point, and then I have one more thing that I wanted to say. No, I'm done. Well, Go ahead. The other thing is, like, just when you think that, meaning me, or the, you know, a listener or whoever, you know, who's looking at this, like, oh, I know what the rules are for this, and I know exactly how I feel, then there's a case that, that sort of breaks those rules, I think. Like, for instance, you do include in the book an example of a, of a woman who's like, a, I can't remember her exact... A job, but she's like a conservative fam- famous person who is involved with hobbies, right? And so she like yes. has a a non-binary son and she puts her pronouns around beside her name and then all of her conservative fans reject her, but the liberals don't want her either because she's like, you know, pro she's pro-life and and so she ends up committing suicide, right? And so I felt, you know, I felt like this woman should not have been lost her entire audience because she did a sensible thing and put her pronouns after her name, which is completely reasonable. And yet you could also imagine that happening. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there's, I, I think the media tends to focus on cancellation of like coming from the, the progressive left, but there's certainly cancellation that is coming from the right against folks on the left and against, I mean, if you want to talk about cancellation, let's talk about like banning books. Let's talk about saying that you can't talk about menstruation uh, before sixth grade. I mean, like is happening in Florida. So I wanted to be sure to include some examples of that as well. So yeah, the the, the craft influencer who who is rejected by her people for putting the pronouns on. And then, yeah, the left doesn't want to touch her either. And it's like nobody can figure out how to uh, uh, <laughs> how to look at these things separately. Like, oh, we really like her crafts, but we disagree with this. Or like, wow, we really hate that she's pro-life, but we applaud her courage in putting her pronouns on. Instead, it's, it's again, it's like, nope, it has to be either yes or no, for or against, everyone's against. So. Yeah, it seems like, I mean, one of the things that the book does so well is, I mean, it is so funny and it also is in some ways just about, I mean, there's so much about bullying mm-hmm. um, also yeah. in here and the ways that um, the ways that social media and the news have changed fundamentally how that works. So um, it has at times a light touch and it also takes on this topic that I think certainly all of our listeners um, are paying a lot of attention to. Certainly now the, the DEI officer at, at Uber, former DEI officer at Uber, um, yeah, that's a fa- that is a fascinating is, story. I really want to know more know. about like where what that course was about and, and where it's yeah. I mean, I mean that's like the that's like the sequel. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, but, I will say as a middle aged white lady, I don't particularly love the term Karen, but does that merit a course? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Jane, thank you so much for joining us. And listeners, uh, don't miss the Society of Shame. It is funny, it is sad, it is so, so, so smart, um, and pick it up in an independent bookstore near you. Thank you guys so much. This is great. I really appreciate it. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, 
on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net, where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading!